You're listening to Asbury University's Chapel Podcast, recorded live from our campus in Wilmore, Kentucky. Asbury's Chapel Service hosts speakers from around the world to inspire academic excellence and spiritual vitality. We hope you enjoy today's message. Good morning. What a beautiful sight. And what an amazing thing to have original music. I mean, there's our, we serve a creator God and he gives that creativity to us. So singing our faith in new ways is a beautiful thing. So thank you for leading us in worship. Appreciate it. It's good to be back here. I've um, been here, I think this is my fourth time, but it's spread out and there's always a whole new group of students. Oh my goodness, even the balcony is full. How wonderful. So do we have the scripture on the screen that I asked for us to read from uh, John 14? If not, I'll just read it right off my Bible. If you have a Bible or you want to look along, if you love me, this is the promise of the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 15. And I'd like to start just by reading the word of God. In fact, if you are able, would you be willing to stand for the gospel? These are the words of Jesus. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphaned. I'm coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. They who have my commandments and keep them are those who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will reveal yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, those who love me will keep my word and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine but it is from the father who sent me i have said these things to you while i'm still with you but the advocate the holy spirit whom the father will send in my name will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We'll try that one. So it was coming up on three years. Now some of you have a real good frame of reference for what almost three years feels like because you came here. You juniors, this, yeah, there you are. Just think how much has happened in the last three years. You've gotten to know some people that When you walked onto this campus, we're total strangers to you. And you've experienced some things, you've encountered some ideas, you've had some fun times. You have made friends that you never expected to make. And some of you have bonded in some pretty tight small groups, I would guess. And three years is like that. Some of you have been here four years or five or six. Maybe not longer than that. (laughs) And you might have made twice as many friends, or you might have twice as long a journey with the same small group of friends, and you've learned what community is. You've learned to love each other deeply 
And if one of you were to start talking like Jesus is talking, starting in, around John 12, you'd get at first kind of puzzled and then very concerned because they had come to know Jesus so intimately. And he wasn't just one of their circle. He was clearly the leader of their circle. He was the one they admired, they followed, they pledged to give their lives to. And they had watched him, right? They watched him do miracles. They watched him welcome sinners in a way that, man, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners, and he got a lot of grief for that. He touched lepers and transformed them. Instead of him getting dirty and getting unclean with their touch, they were cleaned. They watched Jesus, some of them, on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they saw him in dazzling white, and they realized the supernatural reality that was in their midst for three whole years. Now, we should just make sure that we picture this correctly because the Sunday school books didn't have it right. There were a bunch of women in that group too. But now, and, and, and Luke 8 makes sure that we know that. The first paragraph is perfectly clear. So when we picture the, the ones who love Jesus following him and getting to know him and being changed by who he is, that was a bigger group. But now, toward the end, he's just talking to, in fact, 11. 11 of his closest friends. And a couple chapters back, he started saying things like, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again. If a, if a grain of wheat doesn't fall into the ground and die, it won't ever produce the crop it was intended to produce. And at first, you know, we could, this, the, the talk of Jesus' death started to pick up. It wasn't just once or twice. It started to be a steady drumbeat. And so after he washed their feet in chapter 13, after Judas left so that it went from 12 to 11, Jesus says to them very clearly, I'm going to go away, and you can't come where I'm going. And I think they went from a little confused to intrigued to terrified because he's, he made it very clear, I'm going away. Then he says, well, I'm, I'm coming back. But if you can imagine your closest friend who's only 33 years old talking about dying, you know that there's, it's not a death of natural causes. This is going to be that somebody's going to kill him. And there's an ominous drumbeat. There's a dark cloud coming over this thing. And so when we are in Lent, we try to rewind the story a bit and go back and put ourselves in the place of the disciples as they walked toward Jerusalem and Calvary. And maybe some of you can really relate to feeling an awful lot of confusion. He, he talks about it in a minute. I'm going to read where he says, you know, I won't leave you orphaned. Now just think about it. I don't think he was very fatherly toward them. Like an orphan is a, is a child who loses parents. But I do think that they're about to go through something that's going to make them feel like a motherless child. When Jesus is taken from them, they're going to feel bereft and lonely and unprotected because Jesus has been their teacher and guide. So just put yourself in that place of being with Jesus for three years and then he starts talking crazy like he's not going to be here with you. So I want to look again uh, a little bit more carefully at what Jesus said to them in this passage. First of all, he said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 
And he doesn't just say this once in this passage. He says it three times. Makes me kind of go to John 21 when he says to Peter, do you love me? And he has to ask three times. Now, I, I'm amazed by that, that the God of the universe would humble himself enough to pop the question to one of his friends, do you love me? Do you really love me? Do you love me? So here he's got a big fat if at the beginning of this passage. This whole thing is conditional. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments and I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate. There was a time in my life where I thought, Jesus, this doesn't sound like you. You don't seem to be the type who has to demand obedience. Like, I see you as inspiring. I see your teaching as welcoming. Why are you talking commandments here? Because I don't know about your generation, but I know my generation, there's two words we hate, command and obey. Like, give me a suggestion, let me take it or leave it, but command and obey, no. And it doesn't feel like the Jesus that I've come to know, that he's starting to say, I will equate your obedience with your love. If you love me, you will obey me. And then I remember that Jesus was sent from the Father, and Jesus is not saying anything the Father hasn't been saying all along. And if I go back to Deuteronomy chapter 30, at the very end of the chapter where Moses is passing the baton to Joshua, and they're going to go into the promised land, and they've had a covenant renewal time. And Moses has reviewed their history and he's shown that over and over again, this loving God has done everything he could to inspire faithfulness and to get them to love him back with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And one way that's demonstrated is by obeying him. And at the end here, he says in verse 19, this day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him, for the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do you notice that when God says, this is the blessing of life, these are the curses that come from disobedience and rejecting me. He doesn't say, okay, so whatever. Take your pick, one or the other, it's up to you. He doesn't just leave it neutral. He goes on record by saying, choose life. It's not like 50-50, go ahead and just, you know, go your own way if you want, that's fine. No, he says, choose life. And what is life? To walk in this relationship with God where you know him and he knows you. This is life. And so when Jesus says something very similar in John 14, we know that he's not, not making up something new. This is the way it's been all along, is that the God who made us knows what's best for us. And then he says, and I will ask the Father, and he'll give you another advocate. Let's talk about that. Two things about that. One is, he says it's another. Hey, <laughs> Jesus has already been their advocate. <laughs> They've already experienced what it is to have someone who is for them, someone who is on their side, and guess what? He's still our advocate. He's at the right hand of the Father, still advocating for us. Now, some of your Bibles might, might not use the word advocate here, and this is one of those cases where we don't have an English word that gets all the range of meanings in the word that's here, the paraclete. So there's four different ways I've seen in Bible translations for this. The first one is advocate. Second one is comforter. 
counselor, and helper. Oh my word. Do we need all four of those things? Like the advocate sounds like a legal defense who's got your back, and I need that. Comforter, now I used to think comforter was sort of like the, the wimpy, oh, there, there, pat you on the back kind of comfort, until I understood that in Latin, that's comfortus with strength. It's encouragement. It's helping you to do the hard thing and take the risk and be couraged. Couraged, is that a word? Take courage, okay? And then there's that idea of counselor. And sometimes I'm completely confused, and I need that guidance, that wisdom, that voice of truth speaking deeply into me, and then helper. Oh, Lord. Even this morning when Sarah, I, I guess we're going to call you Dr. Baldwin, prayed. You know, I knew her from a long, long time ago. She was just Sarah Thomas, and I was just Linda Adams. There we were. Uh, she reminded us that some of us come in here with heavy hearts and broken hearts, and to imagine that God has stooped low enough to offer to be our helper is a pretty amazing, wonderful thing. So it says that this also is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Interesting. I mean, the spirit of God is invisible. They're not going to see him with their eyes either. They're going to see evidence of him, but they are going to know him. You know him, he says, because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus is trying to help them understand in this whole long series of talks that he's got to go away because his physical presence is confined to one human body. But when he goes, the Spirit will come and will be in and among all of his father's followers all over the world. As I've traveled to 40 countries in the last 11 years, I've been amazed at how many languages God speaks because I've heard worship in 40 languages, and I've seen this same spirit that I know lives in me. I've recognized it in the worship of 80 Indian children with their hands raised and the tears streaming down their faces. They praise Jesus. And I'm thinking, okay, I don't know a word they're saying, but I totally recognize it because it's the same spirit. And God receives praise and prayers in all languages. And this spirit will be able to be in us. And he continues, on that day you'll know I'm in the Father and you and me and I in you. There's no more Trinitarian passage in the whole Bible than this. It's just God the Father sends the spirit. God the Father and the Son, we come, he says, we will reveal ourselves and make our home in you. Our home, plural. And he goes again to that subject. If you obey my commandments and keep them, those are the ones who love me. And those who love me will be loved by my Father, and I'll love them and reveal myself to them. Christianity without Jesus actually revealing himself to our innermost being is the driest, dustiest, boring set of propositions ever. The whole thing rises and falls on whether God, the living God, is alive and in communion, in relationship with you, and that's what he's trying to offer them. I'm going to go away, but there's only one of me, and after I go, I'm going to send the one who will be with you forever, and you will know the love of God at that point. Now Judas, with the unfortunate first name of Judas, because he has to say Judas, not Iscariot. How would you like to be known as Judas, not Iscariot? Donald, not Trump. 
you know, <laughs> there's, a, there's an unfortunate first name for this guy, Judas, sorry. <laughs> and he asked the most logical question, Lord, how is it that you'll reveal yourself to us and not to the world? I mean, either everybody can see you or nobody can see you. Why, why can we perceive what you're about to do, but the people standing right next to us won't perceive it? I think that's a good question. And then Jesus says, those who love me will keep my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word you hear is not mine, but it's from the Father who sent me. Here's the deal. We cannot see the revelation of Jesus. We cannot perceive the presence of the Spirit without it involving a love relationship. I'm always fascinated by the woman at the well. Uh, Jesus has this encounter with her, and it gets to the point, you know, it's back and forth, back and forth, gets deeper and deeper, and then he says, go call your husband and come, and she said, I don't have a husband, and this is the moment of truth. He says, you're right, you're telling the truth. You don't actually have a husband. You have had five, and the one you've got now, you're just living with, but you're telling the truth. Now, isn't that an affirming way to talk to her about that? And she goes, I see that you're a prophet. When she runs back into town, she says, there's a guy out at the well who told me everything I ever did. Well, Jesus didn't exactly tell her everything she ever did, but what he did was he looked right into the heart of hearts, and she knew herself. She knew two things at the same time. She knew she was thoroughly known and thoroughly loved. And that's what happens when the Spirit comes. Jesus is letting them know ahead of time because he wants them to be prepared for that Acts 1-8 thing and then Acts chapter 2 and what's coming. And I always want to jump ahead and talk about that. But in Lent, no, we should back up and put ourselves in the place of the confused disciples waiting. Now, I have a little story to close with to talk about, and I know that it runs a risk because a couple of weeks ago, you were all talking about something that happened 50 years ago, and here's what I know. Like, if you go to your grandparents' golden anniversary celebration and you see a picture of how they fell in love 50 years ago, you kind of smile and go, isn't that quaint? But you know instinctively that the world has changed so much in 50 years that that was then and this is now. But I gotta tell you that the people who invited me to speak in chapel had no idea that I had anything to do with anything that happened here 50 years ago. But I was 14 years old and John Roller was nine years old and we were in the Spring Arbor Free Methodist Church. And some students from this room carried hot coals to Michigan. And the revival spilled out over there. Now, I just have to tell you that we, including, I don't know about John, he was a little young, but his older brother David, who just retired as a bishop, David, we were in the balcony. Now, you guys are very well behaved, but we teenagers, there are about that many of us, and we would, during church, sit in the balcony and chew gum and pass notes and flirt. You didn't do that, did you? <laughs> That's what happens when you let teenagers sit in the balcony with no adults, and they don't care a bit about what's going on down front and they have no expectation that, that God's gonna actually show up. And then God showed up. And I just, I know it, 
it runs the risk. You try to describe something indescribable and you, and you just sound goofy. So forgive me and just bear with me for a couple of minutes. But when the living God moves in, you can't talk about it 50 years later without crying. Because the manifest presence, the glory of God came into our room. And within days, we migrated from the balcony to the front row. And we were down here kneeling and praying, and we were laying hands on people who were healed. I'll never forget a woman coming down the aisle in a wheelchair, and after the prayer, standing up and running. There were students who went across the street to the campus and told their roommates at midnight, get out of bed and come over there because God's in the church. Too bad that's an ironic statement. God should always be in the church. But when the manifest presence of God is there, there is this amazing, awestruck willingness to say, here I am. And I think just like at the, the woman at the well, this is what happens. Whether the Holy Spirit comes to you all alone, walking in the woods near Wilmore, or whether it happens in a big group of people, what happens is we know in the same instant that we are completely known, which could be terrifying. I mean, Isaiah said, I'm undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in a people of unclean lips. There's something about being completely exposed to the one who knows all things that, that lets you know there is no hiding place. But here's the most amazing thing that I can testify and other people can too. At the very same moment, we are completely known, we are completely loved. So people started confessing sin, they started repairing broken relationships, they, they named resentment, they admitted that they'd been playing church and we would get together for months and months, the youth group, at the church in the morning to pray for our classmates before we got on the school bus. And we would get off the school bus and go back to the church as soon as we could and stay there until our parents made us go home. Okay, it sounds like we were nuts, doesn't it? But here's what happened. Our faith became real. And in that time, it's so easy to say yes. And we said yes. A couple years later, the Lord called me into ministry. I had never met a female pastor. I didn't know what my yes was really going to mean. But I just said, yes, my life is yours. And I know this, that whatever happened 50 years ago is pretty much irrelevant to you, but that's old wine, and that's my story. God has new wine for you. He has new fire for you. The soundtrack of my life for the last nine months or so has been the song, New Wine. I think you know it. It says, where there is new wine, there is new power, there is new freedom, the kingdom is here. I lay down my offering to carry your new fire today. What is the new fire of God? Because you know what? I can't carry it for you. You've got a whole new generation to reach. But I know that our living God is here today. And that same Spirit of God, who has been given to the world, and we live post-Pentecost, I just want to let you know, I want to invite you, that it doesn't have to be a big emotional movement, it just has to be yes. The only difference is that in those big emotional movements, it's easy to say yes, whereas normally it's harder to say yes. 
but the Spirit of God is given to guide us into truth, to woo us to himself, to convict us of sin so that we agree with God and we are changed. That's 50 years ago, and I'm saying that fire is still alive. And we've scattered all over the world to take the gospel to the farthest reaches because of what he did in our hearts when we were teenagers. So thank you. I want to carry some fire right back here. But it's new fire. This isn't 50-year-old fire. This, this fire is from this morning. And I know you have it too. And if you don't, you can. <laughs>